Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what faith in Him might look like, we're glad you're here. It is our prayer that through our sermons, you might better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. All right, we'll be reading from 1 Peter 4 in the NIV today. So I'll give you a moment to find that. 1 Peter 4 and verses 7 to 11. Uh, so follow along in the Bible, or you can follow along on the screens. Oh, awesome, they have it up there. So we'll start here. Uh, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one of you use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. Uh, verse 11 says, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. It's great to be with you here this morning, uh, to have the chance to uh, once again be with this faith community and to look into God's Word. But before we get into looking at that, I did want to bring you a little bit of an update from the last time uh, that I was here with you. Since that time, we have had our national gathering of Baptist General Conference churches. You know my role is to serve as the district coach for the Baptist General Conference, of which Ness is a, uh, how do you want to say, a, a poster church for us as saying, well, we would aspire this for all of our churches. And so we had our national gathering. Uh, we did it in Niagara Falls this year. We went down there, had a little over 100 people, and we all came together, talked about a variety of things and how do we support our churches, our pastors. One of the things we spoke about was church planting. And at that meeting, we were celebrating the uh, in bringing into affiliation Osborne Village Church, which is a church plant of Ness. And as part of our whole presentation, we had a church panel time to where we brought up different pastors from across the country and shared about how God had worked in their community to be a part of a church plant. And so Pastor Jeremy and Brennan were, were a key part of that, and we were able to really celebrate together how God has worked to bring that church into existence. And to celebrate that even today, the ministry of Ness is being extended beyond these walls in a different part of our city, and people are being engaged with the gospel of Christ and, and brought into relationship with Him. So I wanted you to know, we are very thankful for the presence of Ness, not only for your support, uh, but for your engagement in the greater mission of building God's kingdom and using a church plant to do that and uh, being a community that really gets behind and supports that. Pastor Jeremy gave tremendous credit to the people of Ness Avenue for being supportive and sacrificially giving to make that possible. So I wanted to pass that on to you that we were excited to be celebrating how we've seen God at work here and uh, what he's doing. So uh, that's just a little bit of an update. We also did talk about some things that we're working on to support our pastors and our churches as we're navigating new challenges in society, new trends. 
How do we equip our churches to be able to navigate these things and to be a vibrant, vibrant testimony to Jesus Christ? So we spend a lot of time doing that and uh, continuing to work on things. Pastor Jeremy is, is well involved with that as well uh, because he serves on the board, but also just as one of the pastors of our uh, influential churches. So I uh, just wanted to bring that word of update to you and hope that you're encouraged to know that as you're ministering right here, you're also uh, being an example to our other churches across the country. So thank you very much for being that. Okay, so now we're going to turn our word, our eyes to God's word. Uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us in those songs, many of those songs, right on the theme of how do we walk through this life with the right perspective, and how do we recognize God's work even in the challenging times. So thank you, uh, worship team, for putting that together and leading us through that. And before we go into the word, I want to ask you, what is the most recent ending that you have experienced? Is there any ending that comes to mind? Just think about that. You don't, you don't have to offer it to everyone. But we go through lots of endings in life because we're bound by time. So time is moving us toward those different endings. There's probably a lot in this community that would be saying, oh yeah, we have a student that is celebrating the ending of their high school experience, known as graduation, or students coming out of university, yes, ending that phase of life, that segment of life. You know, endings are an interesting thing because they're a little bit of a mixed bag, right? I mean, it's like sometimes we look at an ending with great anticipation and excitement. Sometimes there's anxiety and intrepidation. Oh my gosh, what's, what's next? That's, that's the dreaded word that every graduate hates to hear. Oh, well, what are you doing next year? I have absolutely no idea. No clue. You know, that's, that's what most graduates will tell you. I'm tired of trying to answer that question. But for all of us, regardless of what we go through, the specific ending, it comes with certainty, but also with much uncertainty. And how are we going to navigate that newness, whether it's the ending of a career or maybe a relocation, a move, ending being part of a community, a different phases of life. Some are exciting, some are fearful. And how do we navigate those times when the uncertainty of the ending overwhelms the excitement of the beginning? Well, that's what we're going to get into today as we take a look in this book of 1 Peter. We spend some time understanding what was Peter's expectation for these people. And it might be helpful for us just to take a moment and look at the bigger context of what was going on. Because it makes a really big difference as to how we look at these words if we know what Peter was writing to when he wrote some of this. So, let's take a look at that. First off, the book is written by the one that it bears his name, Peter. This is the Apostle Peter. And if you're a reader of the uh, Gospels in the New Testament, you're like, oh, wait a minute, isn't this the guy that denied Christ? Uh, isn't this the guy that Jesus actually said, uh, get behind me, Satan? Is, is this the same Peter? Yeah, it's the same Peter. You know, and, and sometimes Peter gets a bad rap because we read through the Gospels and we're like, wow, that guy's just always flying off the handle. That guy, really, how could you say that in the presence of Jesus, Peter? Or how could you have been so numb to what the people around you were going through, Peter? So sometimes we say that, but clearly 
The transformation has taken part in Peter's life by the way he writes these words to these brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's, that's the author of this book, is Peter the Apostle. He was contemporaries with all the other apostles, with, with Paul as well. So they were all serving together. They would have known what was going on in one another's lives as they journeyed through the years of the early church and that those coming to Christ. So that's, that's Peter. That's this Peter. It's also interesting to note that this letter was circulated somewhere between 63 and 64 B.C. I mean, I'm sorry, A.D. 63 and 64. Now, and, and the second letter that Peter writes, which is 2 Peter, was most likely written in A.D. 65. The language changes in 2 Peter. That, I'm, I'm not a, a, a historian geek or anything like that, but that's important to know because in 64 B.C., so this was written between 63 and 64, in 64 A.D., Rome was burned, right? Rome went up in flames. And we know by historical fact that the Christians were blamed for that burning of Rome. It's also important to note that the emperor of Rome at the time was Nero. No matter what you know about Nero, most likely you're not saying, that, oh, that's the guy that was known for, oh, yeah, he built great uh, flower gardens, he built great water features, he was just, he was the most benevolent emperor of Rome ever. No, that's not what comes to mind, because Nero was one of the most brutal emperors that Rome had ever experienced. His, his history of coming into power alone was vicious, and who he did not spare in order to become the emperor. But Nero is the one that is now presiding over Rome. It's also interesting to note that the Apostle Paul, most likely somewhere between 63 and 64, was martyred by Nero. We know that by history, Shortly after this letter is written, one to two years maximum, Peter was martyred by Nero. So we can look at these letters with a different kind of intensity because of what Peter was experiencing and the people he was writing to knowing that they were experiencing much of the same. And this letter comes from Rome. So there is a whole lot going on in, in the world of Christianity, in the world of Christ followers, in the political world, there is a lot going on right in this period, and it's right in this period where Peter chooses to send this letter out. It's interesting that this is one of the few letters, there's about seven of them, that were sent as a circulation letter. This is not written to one specific church of, okay, you're in this town, in this church, I'm addressing these issues for you. Rather, this church was written into what is present-day Turkey, into that region, but with the intent of it being circulated amongst the followers that had been dispersed from Rome, from Jerusalem, from those areas where they had grown up, where they were familiar. And they had been dispersed because of persecutions that were already happening to them. That's why when you read through some of the language of, of Peter, he's addressing them as, yeah, you... You are in a foreign place, uh, physically, realistically. You're in a foreign place. Nobody around you understands you. You're in a different place. 
Often as you read through this book, if you were to sit down and read it as a letter, take away the, the numbers and just read it as a letter, you would say, wow, these people were going through a dark, dark time. The words that Peter is using to encourage him are echoes of what he must have seen in the conclusion of Christ's life. Not just the whole testimony, but powerfully those concluding hours and moments of Christ's life, those are echoed throughout this entire book of 1 Peter. So I encourage you, pick it up. Just take a chance. It's 15 minutes. You can read through the entire letter and get a sense for, wow, this is what the people were going through. And the overall theme that Peter is pushing is hope. Hope in the dark times. And we don't have time to, to go back and to pick up all the themes and everything in there. But he, Peter wants these people to walk away from this letter understanding the hope that they have, which is well beyond a natural response, a natural hope that they should have had for the circumstances they were facing. There are some familiar verses in here, even if you're not familiar with having read the, the whole book of 1 Peter. This is the passage, in 1 Peter has the passage where it says, you know, Satan is prowling around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. That's, that's here in, in 1 Peter. Uh, the verses where it talks about we are strangers, we are aliens living in this world. Our citizenship is not of this world, but it's of a heavenly realm. That's in this, 1 Peter, as he's uh, striving to encourage in these people. So you can read through it, you can find those things. That gives you an idea of where Peter is going to go. He's already spent most of the book talking to them about this hope, and where we're going to jump in today, it's nearing the conclusion of the book. It's in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to pick it up right at, at verse 7. So he starts off like this, after all these encouragements, after all these things that he said to them, he said, the end of all things is near. Now what comes to your mind if I say, if, if I were a credible source to you, which Peter was to these followers, they're like, Peter, Peter knows, we trust, we believe in here. The end of all things is near. What comes to your mind? Chances are like, like when I first read that, I'm like, oh, okay, I can see like the guy walking down the street with the sandwich board, you know, saying the end is near, repent or be destroyed, kind of doomsday, kind of a nihilist. Or possibly, um, you know, the, the, there was a phase for this. This still goes on, but these survivalists that say, oh, the end is near, so hunker down, get, get all your supplies together, go find a place off grid where nobody's ever going to find you and just hunker down and, and live out the rest of your time. Maybe that's what comes to mind. Maybe what comes to mind is just what Peter says here. The end of all things is near. Pray. So maybe you're like, wow, yeah, everybody hit your knees and just start praying. You know, God, get us through this thing, help this thing to pass, whatever. Maybe that's what comes to your mind. That's not really what Peter's calling these people to. He acknowledges the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. True, he wants you to pray, but to pray in a different way. Now, you, you might be sitting there and saying, now, wait a second, this was written over 2,000 years ago. And this guy is saying the end of all things is near. And to be fair, at a superficial reading, you might, wow, he missed the target. That we're 2,000 years later and the end was not there. Well, there are a number of theories around what, what was this really saying, what was going on. The most prominent is that people... Peter was speaking and saying, it's clear. We are not, 
going to continue on forever. And in the event that Christ does not physically return, he will be manifest to each one of us on a personal basis as we enter his presence as we pass through this life. Now, you could say, well, you know, Peter, you were really off base in your timing, but the reality is that right now, today, Peter is sitting in the presence of Christ. For Peter, this was very true. And if you take into account, like we talked in the context, all of the things that were happening around Peter, most likely he had seen Paul martyred. Other of the apostles had already been martyred. He, within a year or, a year or two, would be martyred. Peter was saying to them, the end of all time as we know it, life as we know it, is near the end. So with the rest of your time, here's the way I want you to live. And I think that's the thing that can echo through our minds because all of us have the rest of our time. I don't know how long that is for each one of us. Uh, it, it's hard to say. Things may take their natural course. Christ may return or it may be unnatural for us the rest of our course, and it may end prematurely. But Peter is saying, with the rest of the time, whatever that is for you, the rest of the time, whatever that happens to be, I want you to live in this way. As a matter of fact, Warren Wearsby in his commentary on 1 Peter says, be hope, uh, called be hopeful. He says Peter's predominant theme is to live life realizing that the rest of our time is the most significant thing to us, and we will be entering a time in which all of, all of creation is glorifying God. We have the privilege to glorify Him with the rest of our time on earth. Because time is a finite piece that we have that we can glorify Him with. Shortly, we will not have that anymore, but we'll be in His eternal presence. So that's what Peter's calling them to. Live life with the perspective of what will you do with the rest of your time as you are on this earth. Now, what's interesting is that when Peter says, I want you to pray with the rest of your time, he's not calling them to a panicked prayer. The words that are used here, it says clear-minded and sober or self-controlled. In the original language, what those words are saying, I want you to be sane. I want you to think of things properly. I want you to have the proper perspective. And I want you to be controlled, not running around as the sky is falling, the sky is falling, everybody needs to run and hide. Not that kind of a prayer, but the kind of prayer that invites God into your circumstances. The kind of prayer that is intentional, and sober, and it's like, I understand from a true perspective that God's at work in this, and that this is time limited. This is not eternity. This is not all that's left, but it's something that's left. I need to live and pray a certain way with what I have left. So he's saying to them, you can pray in a clear-minded, sober way, and that is different than what most people would expect to pray if you're like, okay, this is it. These are the final minutes of life. These are the final hours of life. Peter's calling them to an unnatural prayer, a supernatural prayer. So what would you be praying? If I was like, 
okay, this is it, the, the very end of things, you've got the opportunity to pray. I want you to pray clearly with the right perspective. Well, we're going to see in a little bit what Peter is expecting them to pray, but this is where we can realize that Peter's expectation for them is that they pray with a dependence on God, knowing that it is a dark time, that it is a harsh time for the believers, for the followers. He's expecting them to pray in a way that invites God into their circumstance, but also realizes that their circumstance is not overpowering for the work of God. Peter expects them to, in some way, glorify God even in the midst of these dark and difficult persecutions that they were facing. Even when things were lining up with what their expectations were, he expects them to pray in a way that God would be glorified. Sometimes that's simply by inviting him into our circumstances, acknowledging our dependence on him, and saying, Lord, I, I don't understand what's going on, but I want to, in this way, glorify you as I walk through it. It's kind of like what James says, just, just a, a book earlier in the New Testament, in the, gospel, in, the, in the book of James, in that letter, in James chapter 1, verse 5, James says, you know what, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he gives generously. So James is saying, pray to God, and in that context, because they were going through challenges and trials. And so James is saying, if you don't understand that going through these challenges and trials is an important way of glorifying God, that it's, that it's part of your being his follower, then ask God, and he will give you the wisdom, the perspective that he's at work, that you are not helpless, and that these things aren't just randomly happening to you. Well, he goes on after he says this in uh, verse 7, he, he goes calls them to pray soberly in a self-controlled way in the midst of, of all these ending things. He says in verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Peter is saying that it's paramount, that as you walk through this, that you must love one another. Now, where else would Peter have heard that? Under what other context would Peter have heard that? And this is not unique to Peter. You can go through, look, look at uh, the words Paul writes it in Galatians. Just about every other uh, New Testament writer somehow references back to love one another. And remember, he's writing to the body of Christ. Even though these believers were scattered in different places, he's writing to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He says here in this, above all, the paramount thing is that you love each other deeply. Where did he hear that before? It was in John chapter 13. It was in those final hours with Jesus Christ. You know, this is, they had gone through, the, Jesus had washed their feet. He had, uh, they were, had the last supper. And Jesus tells them, he's got, I, I got a new command for you to love one another as I have loved you. And if you do this right, the entire world around you will know you're my disciples. That's what Jesus said. It's that much of a marker on your life. Peter is echoing that here. He follows it up by saying that it covers over a multitude of sins. Now, Peter's not calling us to cover up or to condone sin. But what he's saying here is that if we love one another deeply, 
that we will administer God's grace. We will suffer offense. We will reach out to one another and we will share the grace of God because well, maybe that was harmful, maybe that was hurtful, but you're able to navigate it because you're in a love relationship with one another. I think it's important to point out as well, Peter qualifies this love he's expecting from them. He uses the word deeply, and that's an athletic term, actually, in the language. And, and what it was meant for was like uh, when you saw an athlete in the training phases, preparing for a competition, and how they would be straining and developing. And, and those training exercises weren't necessarily pleasant exercises, but they joyfully engaged in those because they knew it was strengthening them in a way to perform better at the point of competition. So that deeply, it's kind of like if you were to look at that athlete and they're straining in every muscle, their veins are popping, their muscles are bulging because they are really putting absolutely everything they have into that training technique to be better. That's the word Peter uses here. That I want you to love each other with that kind of a strenuous, or even some of your translations, some of the translations may say fervently, I want you to love each other with that intensity. This is not superficial, it's not emotional, it's not casual. It calls for deep expression of that love to one another. Then it's almost as if through verses 9 through 11, Peter kind of amplifies what that might look like. Almost like he'd say, hey, I want you to love one another deeply, fervently, strenuously. For example, then he goes into these uh, descriptions. He says uh, in, in verse 9 through 11, uh, here we go, love you. offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. Now, here's what's really interesting. These were not light and casual things. So remember, go, go back. Peter's, the first thing he says, don't, don't fail to show hospitality to one another. Hospitality was a critical thing. Even in the early church, it was over, it was a little over 200 years from this point before the church, first church buildings started to emerge. Right? So where does that mean that the early believers, the early followers of Christ had to gather and had to meet? They had to meet in homes. Somebody in that faith community had to open their home to it. But now think about this, because we, we experience this today, not in Canada, but in places where the church is underground, right? In places where the church is not well received. In this era, open season had been declared on Christianity. They were blamed for the burning of Rome, right? And, and they were being martyred. What do you think it looks like when all of a sudden I open my home and I've got 10, 15, 20, 50 people that come into my home and what do you think the neighbors around me are thinking? By Peter saying, continue to offer hospitality to one another, in which the gathering of the early church was one expression of hospitality, he was asking them, people, these people, let yourself be publicly clearly identified as a follower of Jesus Christ, and you know the consequences that may come with that. That was one application of hospitality. But also, as followers of Jesus Christ traveled from city to city, 
they didn't have the same kind of availability to hotels and, and nice restaurants and things like that. So that was also an expect expectation, not just individually, but corporately, collectively. How are you showing hospitality to one another? Full knowing that it may place a marker on you, that people around from you may identify in a less favorable way because it's like, oh, wait, you're one of those people? I thought you were responsible for these things. Well, now I'm going to have to treat you a different way. So Peter says, love one another deeply, fervently, strenuously. For example, show hospitality to one another, even though it might bring unfavorable relationships your way. He says, each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Then he points out two gifts. The two gifts, one is speaking. Now that, that to be fair, what's happening right here, right now, this is, an app, this is an expression of speaking. And Pastor Jeremy, every week when he brings you, that is an expression. But that's not the sole restriction on this speaking, what Peter was using. He actually used a word that he borrowed from the, the pagans, from the heathen expression, which they would talk about oracles, supernatural, spiritual oracles that different people would be messengers and bring, and they would just speak it into a space. And so here, while it's true that this did apply to the public teaching and the preaching of the word, this was also meant for if you are speaking, you are to come and bring encouragement to the body of Christ as speaking his words, not your opinions, not your expectations, but so knowing God's word that you can encourage the other believers with his words for whatever circumstance they might be going through. Predominantly, if we look at the rest of this book, Peter would have been expecting them to encourage one another with the hope that they had, that God was at work in the middle of difficult circumstances, in the middle of dark times. God was working there. That would have been an expect expectation. He also brings the gift of serving, and serving in a way that is bringing forth God's strength, that it, it, it's not reliant upon what you physically, your capacities, but you're relying on the strength that God brings to you. It's important to realize that as those two things are expected to say, okay, you're, whether you're speaking or whether you're serving, do it. He says here that we are faithfully administering God's grace. William Barclay has this to say about administering God's grace, which in some of your translations may read stewarding. You may be a steward. Uh, he says this, because in that era, stewarding was a much different thing. There would have been a lot of people that were stewards, but it would have been known, oh, this steward, he clearly is not the owner. This steward simply has a responsibility. So William Barclay, the Scottish uh, theologian and author, has this to say, the steward knew well that none of the things over which he had control belonged to him. They all belonged to his master. In everything he did, he was answerable to his master, and always it was his interest that he must serve. The Christian must always be under the conviction that nothing he possesses of material goods or personal qualities is his own. It all belongs to God, and he must use he must ever use what he has in the interest of God to whom he is always answerable. Barclay saying that whether you have material blessings or personal blessings, personal strengths or characteristics, 
that those are all to be demonstrations of God's grace to your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That as you come to the community of Christ, that your use of those things is a demonstration of God's grace to the community and to individuals. That He is working through you. Because it's not in your personal, natural strength or capacity that you're bringing that service to the church. That's the expectation here. Is that all of this is done pointing back to the master, the owner, for us, the father. Knowing that we are only a steward of what he's been given. As he goes through all this, Peter's clear expectation was that by, by the, as all this comes together, that God is glorified. He says that in 1 Peter 4, verse 11, So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now to read that in isolation is like, okay, yeah, that's a powerful thing. You've got to go back to the context. Because these people were suffering in dark times. These people were being put to death. And yet, Peter is calling them to step out of that, to be overwhelmed by the fact that God's doing something different here, so I can step out of those circumstances and be a different presence in the community of Christ. Peter's expectation is that the eternal reality would overwhelm what their immediate experience was. I don't know how well I would do in that. Peter, I would have to be looking at Peter and say, man, I, this, is, this is a struggle, Peter. I got a challenge with this. Because you know what's odd? Peter is in this book, in this book of 1 Peter, Earlier, you told us that we're supposed to submit to our authorities. Now, Peter, they're the ones killing us. Nero is an authority. But yet you're saying, because that reflects Christ. And then here, you're telling us to not be consumed with the darkness we might be experiencing, but to see it as God's work and ushering us into eternity. That's what you're calling us to, Peter? Those are hard words. But he says, if we do that, that God will be praised in all things. That's tough. I don't know, because I look around and I say, wow, there are indicators in our society that certainly seem like, whoo, the end is getting near. Things seem like, wow, these, we haven't seen this before in our society, these kind of trends, these challenges. But it's not nearly what they were going through. But still, I struggle with demonstrating to the body of Christ the way in which Peter calls us to here so that God is glorified. That's tough. And I think if we look at our circumstances, many of you may be saying, hey, I'm going through some difficult things, some challenging things, and I don't necessarily find myself wanting to live out this application of loving the body deeply, of inviting God in to help me adjust my perspective of it. But that's what he's calling us to. So I, I guess I need to make an effort at it. What's interesting is this verse, this 1 Peter 4.11, that says, hey, in all things, regardless of all things, we are to glorify God. This is the verse that if you've ever heard of the Benedictine monks, like they're a very devout sect of monks, um, ancient, but they're still in, intact today around the world. 
they draw their motto from this verse, that in all things God might be glorified. Is anybody here familiar or, or fluent in Latin? Can anybody speak Latin? Good. Okay. So I'll pronounce this for you. It's called Ut in Omnibus Glorificitur Deus. Okay. So it's on the screen there. You can try to figure out a pronunciation that's different, but, um, you know. What it means is that so that in all things God may be glorified. This is one of their anchor, their pillars for them as the Benedictine monks. I came across an example that is, it's just profound in their understanding of it, right? They were, they were devout. They're still very devout monks following after Christ. Say, in all things God might be glorified. There's an ancient monastery in Austria, and it was built before plumbing and all those things existed, but in the middle of the uh, monastery, there was a spring, a, a, a well water spring that served the whole monastery. And what they had done is at this spring, they had built a water feature, a water fountain. So they went up, had multiple outlets. And today, even to today, it's running, this fountain that was, that was built. And it was built right off of the kitchen. So it, it serves, they were in and out of that place all day long, this, this well. And it's right off the kitchen. And this was the place that each monk was to come to after their meal and come and they were to wash their own dishes and everything and put them away and serve them. Well, the well, it's not a utilitarian thing in the sense of if you walked in, you'd be like, wow, there's something special going on here. They built around this well and this fountain, they built at what would we would see it as a cathedral, stained glass windows on all side, a cathedral style domed ceiling and a uh, space so that it was it was circular so that the monk could all come around this well and at the very top of the dome there was an edifice of Jesus Christ looking down on this water feature this fountain and it was so vivid to the monks that even in washing our dishes we realize that Christ is looking at us and are we praising him are we glorifying him with the way that we wash our dishes for me, that's, that's pretty granular. I don't know that I've ever been a mindset of when I'm washing dishes or putting them in the dishwasher of, wow, okay, is, is Christ praised in this? I'm more of the mindset of, okay, will I get caught if I just put this in here and don't rinse it off before? You know, that's, that's more what I'm thinking. And I can think in my mind's eye, I can see those monks around there washing, clattering those dishes and just being possibly irritated with the way the person next to him was washing their dishes and just throwing their hands up. And when they throw their hands up, they say, oh, wait a minute. I can't be frustrated with the way this guy is being now loud and clanky. I see that Christ is watching over even the way in which I wash my dishes. So how will I do this in a way that glorifies him? That was the expectation that Peter had. It's a good example for what the Benedictines were doing to say, as often as we go for water, we want to be reminded all that we do must glorify God. Well, Peter, it was clear. Peter was expectant of the ending that was coming, and he had a clear view of eternity as he was going through that ending. He wanted these people, as they were reading this letter, to consider what the rest of their time might look like. And sometimes we might be tempted to say, oh, Peter was saying to them, you know, this too shall pass. This will pass. That's not what he was saying. Peter was saying, this is the path. This is personable. 
This is purposeful, and God can be praised in this. It's To say this too shall pass is like, wow, this, this crazy unfortunate thing has happened to me, and it will go away, and I'll be on to bigger and better things. Peter would have been saying to them, the things that have come into your life, dark and hard, are here by intention, and God wants to be praised through them as you step toward him. So in closing, he has these three encouragements for us. Number one, we are to pray expectantly, expecting and inviting God into our circumstances, expecting that he can be glorified even in the depths and the darkness of what our circumstances might be. We are to love deeply, strenuously, not superficially, but with all we have in a way in which Christ is observed through our loving one another. And lastly, his expectation is that they would serve one another faithfully, that they would be demonstrations of God's grace in a way that God's grace would become visible through the way that they spoke to one another and through the way that they served one another, even within the context of desperate, dark, and ending times for their experience on this earth. I trust that you can be encouraged, so regardless of the times you're going through, that the ending will be overwhelmed by the beginning of stepping into eternity and the things that we are called to do in 1 Peter. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the way that you love us. I thank you for the way that you are always near. And Lord, I know that there are many circumstances represented right now in this room today. Lord, we ask that you might be at work in us in such a way, such a supernatural way that we can step beyond the natural response and that we can step into what your plan is and that we can step into glorifying you in a way that is beyond us, but a way that will bring you to our neighbors, our friends, and specifically to this body of Christ as we administer your grace to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.